0: Isaiah, the second chapter, and we'll commence our reading there at verse one. Hear once more the word of our God. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations. Shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Our text is just that fifth verse House of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. But before we take up that text i want to ask a really basic question this evening and that is why this text why do we have this text and not just this fifth verse but but all that is promised to us in chapters 2 to 4 of this book of isaiah why are we told of events that are future i suppose not only in this text but but right throughout the Word of God. And I would submit to you that many of us would say, well, simply that we may know what is to come. But surely, as this is part of the Word of God, you you and I have to ask that question. Well, how does this text and its truths, how do they instruct me in righteousness? How do they deliver reproof and rebuke? And it's in many ways that that's our focus this evening. How are we supposed to take this text and to apply it to the present? As we look at this fifth verse, you'll notice that it's quite straightforward. We have a simple addressee, O house of Jacob. I want you to notice just for the moment that, that this is not to Judah only. Uh, Isaiah's principled ministry, of course, was to the southern tribes, but this is not addressed to Judah alone. O house of Jacob, comprising both northern and southern kingdoms. And then this this house of Jacob is exhorted simply to walk in the light of the Lord. It is an encouragement to walk in that same work that you and I read of in verses two to four, to walk in the light of the Lord. Now, in order for us to understand this text, allow me just to review what we saw in those preceding verses. And what we didn't see there was Gentile conversion. Friend, I I, I submit to you that that's a, a very important point. The prophet is not simply telling us that one day Gentiles will come to know the Lord. He's far more specific. He is saying that Gentile nations, Gentile nations will be converted. And what do we see there? We see the instrument is through the church preaching. And we see in verse 2 that this preaching church is exalted above the nations. And it is under her preaching that the nations come to learn of the Lord the path that they are to go. Secondly, you'll notice as well that these nations as such, not as individuals, but nations go to God confessing, in one sense, their former darkness and also their real adherence to the cause of God. This they do again as nations. And then, friend, you'll notice that as you come to that fourth verse these nations are speaking but principally through those who are policy makers. Both on a national level and on an international level. Those who have something to do with domestic policy and that which concerns geopolitics. And these ones are, as we've already said, very plainly Christian magistrates. Christian policymakers. Now friend, what What do these things hold out to us in this prophecy? Friend, evidently what you and I have promised to us here is that Gentile nations, in their national capacity, under the guidance of Christian magistrates, will urge the nations and each other to serve the Lord. And humbly I'd submit to you, friend, that if, if the text doesn't mean that, One, uh, your, your simple pastor doesn't know what it means. And two, I would go a step further and say, friend, to Isaiah's congregation, the first recipients of this text, these promises would be utterly unintelligible to them. No, friend, what you and I have promised here is a coming time whenever the nations, as such, will turn to God. But in this fifth verse, what you and I are also supposed to see is that these nations then turn to Israel. They turn to the house of Jacob, and they urge Jacob to do the same, to walk in the light of the Lord as we read there. Now as we collate this text with what you have in Romans 11, you recognize that you and I are not supposed to see this as though the Gentile nations are converted and then calling Israel to from unconversion to following the Lord, you no know, friend. Do you and I, as we see in Romans 11, see that it is in the engrafting or re engrafting of Israel, as the apostle there, as the apostle promises. Well, then the nations will come as well. So, if this is not so much an, an exhortation of correction, telling Israel to, to come back to the Lord out of darkness. You and I are supposed to understand that this fifth verse is really the nations encouraging Israel to continue to do what she has already been led by grace to do. This is the nations, Jew and Gentile alike, urging one another to walk together in the light of the Lord. And so, friend, this text, this fifth verse, really brings to the fore the idea that one day nations will encourage faithfulness to God. We are promised that one day nations will encourage faithfulness to God. That brings me back, I suppose, to the question that I began with. Why this text? Why was the congregation who first received this on Isaiah's day given these promises. They wouldn't see the days of Messiah, let alone the days that are described for us in this text. So why are they given these promises? And then, friend, you and I have to ask, I suppose, the same question, don't we? These events being future to us still. Why are these things deposited to the church today? A well, friend, I suppose, of course, the immediate answer that we would often give to a question like that is for our information. God would have us know that He is God, the Ancient of Days, and so He tells us the end from the beginning. And all of that is certainly true. But I'd submit to you, friend, that, that there are also many other ways in which these truths have a present relevance. And I would really insist on that this evening as we look at this fifth verse together. For that reason, I won't be giving you a timeline from the pulpit. I suppose I've cheated, and I've given you one in the sermon handout. I want us instead to focus not so much on the intricacies of what is promised here as to see how these things are really to encourage us in godliness, to rebuke us as we have need, and, of course, to draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, first of all, friend, I want us to look at the character of that Reformation work that is promised here. We must begin here. In which you have the nations saying one to another, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And, and I suppose generally we would say that the speaker here, or the speakers rather, are the nations. You see that in verses 2 and in 4. You find that the nations are those encouraging one another, and now in this fifth verse, to the house of Jacob specifically, to walk with the Lord. But but we can make that a bit more specific. Specifically, you and I are supposed to see that these are the domestic and the international policymakers. And why do we say that? Because in verse 4, we're told expressly that these are the ones who have some control in turning their plows, turning their spears, their swords into farming. These are those who do have some say in the nations so as to achieve international peace these are Christian magistrates speaking and the exhortation from these ones is to walk together in the light of the Lord now in context friend the light of the Lord is, is quite straightforward but friend as you look at verse 3 that the nations through their magistrates are saying teach us that he will teach us his ways and And then we're told that it's out of Zion that his law shall go forth, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And what you and I are supposed to recognize, friend, is is in this text, it's very clear. The light of the Lord and the law of the Lord are, are here used interchangeably. And so the nations are urging one another to take up the law of God. And they're encouraging one another to walk faithfully according to that rule. And there are so many other texts friends texts that are very familiar to us of course that make that kind of connection that the scripture is indeed light the entrance of thy word bringeth light the law of the Lord the law and the testimony says Isaiah if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. the law and the testimony is the standard of light and then friend, you also recognize that this is this work of teaching the nations, that is bringing them the scriptures so as to walk in them, is specifically related to Christ. Christ shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles, he will set judgment in the earth, the isles shall wait for his law, and if you go back to the prophecy of Isaiah, that self-same work is described as Christ being a light to these nations. And so, friend, all of these things remind us, just as we saw last time we were together, that that here you have nations that are endeavoring faithful obedience to the Lord. What our text specifically shows us is that they encourage one another in this work. They urge one another to continued and faithful obedience. Now, why do they do this? Friend, the principal cause, of course, is God's glory. But there is something in this text that is quite potent something that you and I shouldn't miss, and that is that there is a sense of a mutual desire to see one another walk in faithfulness. They have a shared interest that the nations around them would walk in the light of the Lord as well. This friend underscores the idea that, that the period which Isaiah here sees is a period of genuine peace. And peace, not just the absence of, con- of conflict, but peace being that real and that present harmony whereby the nations seek the other's good. You and I should not miss that point. This is not the absence of war only. Uh, this is the presence of a real affection and desire that the nations would together walk in the way of the Lord. Now, I'll just underscore very briefly uh, what we've said last time we were together. The first thing we have to recognize is that the nations are doing this. The word of God certainly shows us time and time again that the nations are not the product of man's imagination. In other words, political uh, entities as they are, are the ordinance of God. God is the one who has made nations. He is the one who has ordained civil magistracy. And so, friend, you and I have these nations that are the ordinance of God. They are corporate moral persons. What do we mean? We mean that they, as a single entity, are responsible to God. And here you find them functioning as such, as a single entity endeavoring faithfulness to his word. Uh, Friend, you and I shouldn't miss that. In our age of individualism, the idea that, that nations can carry corporate guilt or engage in corporate righteousness, is very much lost on us, but central to our text. And what we find here, friend, is exactly what Christ had urged the apostles to endeavor. Here we have nations that are genuinely baptized. They are under the name of Christ. You remember, it was the apostles' calling. In this sense, an extraordinary aspect of their calling, that their field was the entire world. And the calling there was to baptize nations. That is, friend, indeed to endeavor the very thing under the grace of God that we find in our text. Nations are to be converted. But the second thing I want you to notice as well, that we learn that not only is this a corporate work, this is certainly a picture of policy. Here you have nations endeavoring to walk according to the light of the Lord, which is scripture precept. And so, friend, what you and I are supposed to see here is that these ones rightfully interpreting that which is of continuing obligation to the nations, they are faithfully implementing that in their own domestic policies, and they're also doing this on an international level. Friend, that being the case, what do we see in this text? What you and I find here, friend, is that as these nations endeavor faithfulness to God, that acrimony that you and I know so well among nations and magistrates, ceases. This is a point you and I shouldn't miss. And what is the key, according to this text, to world peace? I want you to know it won't be nuclear arms deterrence. It will not be another climate summit. According to this text, friend, the nations, they, they shelve all of their previous contention as they submit to Jesus Christ and endeavor faithfully to obey his word. And what's true on a national level, of course, is true on a personal level, isn't it? Friend, if you want strife to cease in a home, in a congregation, at work, or in school, and you and I ought to be praying that, that what is spoken of the nations would be really the heart cry of everyone in all of those contexts because that's the only way peace ensues. Personal and corporate acrimony die only with submission to Christ. And so that's the character. That, that's what the nations are encouraging one another to, to, to faithfulness together in the Lord. Now, I want you to notice, friend, as we come to that more practical question What do we do with this in the present? The first thing I would would remind you is that this is given for the consolation of the church. This promise that that one day, friend, the nations will submit to Christ. That one day, indeed, the knowledge of the Lord will be as the waters that cover the sea. This is, of course, a comfort for those of us who are awaiting that day, that great change. And we shouldn't miss that. In verse 2, friend, you and I should should cherish the fact that the words begin, it shall come to pass. The God who does not lie, the God in whom there is no shadow of turning, he says it will come to pass. Assured victory, says the prophet in verse 2. Those wicked regimes under which you and I live, they have an end date. Where ungodliness reigns. Where people and nations seem only to be intent in rebellion. All of that is coming to an end. There will be an age, friend, in which there will be generations who look upon that kind of thing. And with utter disgust. Friend, for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who long to see his banner raised... This is a comfort. It shall come to pass. But I want you to notice this as well. When the Lord here describes the nation speaking, he says, they say say to the house of Jacob. If you were in Isaiah's congregation, what significance do you think that manner of address held? I want you to remember Friend, that, of course, now for centuries, Isaiah and his congregation only knew a church that was divided. Only knew a church that had had engaged in schism. And yet here in the text, they're described as being one house. This is the house of Jacob, no longer Ephraim and Judah. In fact, friend, what you have here is precisely what is promised later on. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off, Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Friend, what is the Lord describing here but a real of peace in Zion? Now is he describing for us international policy. But in the manner of address of the nations, there is no longer, friend, that schism. Now the church of Israel is one national church again. This is promised in Isaiah 11 as well. But friend, you and I should also move beyond that, just slightly. As this is really a promise that that schism will come to an end, so you and I should see, friend, that this is also true of the Gentile nations. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. In other words, friend, what you'll find as the prophet describes it here is that those, those great confusions and convulsions that have divided the church will be no more. In this age, you will find marked peace, harmony. And as Zechariah describes it, the Lord's name will be one. What does that mean? A well, friend, the Apostle Paul describes it for us in Philippians 3. He says, really, as giving us the pattern, he says, we are to walk wherever we've already attained. We are to walk by the same rule and mind the same thing. That's the kind of peace, that's the kind of restoration that this text holds forth to us. Uh, friend, I, I want to reiterate that this is showing us that denominations will be no more. They will be no more. Uh, that's, that's a point that I'll come back to at the end of our time. But I want you to notice, friend, that for the godly, this is, this is a comforting text because we're told here that the church will prosper and she'll be united. For those who crave church unity, friend, this is a promise that ought to comfort you. Psalm 133 is, is not really hyperbolic. The blessing of God is most sensibly known by the church when her divisions and her schisms are healed. And so, friend, you and I should take comfort. You and I should recognize that even, friend, our divisions have an end date. And even our divisions on the earth, friend, have an end date. Even before the glory that awaits We also have to recognize, too, that this text holds forth that the church will know peculiarly the blessing of the Lord. When he says that they are to walk in the light of the Lord, uh, Friend, you and I shouldn't forget that the scriptures also describe the light of the Lord as being those who live under his countenance and blessing. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. There, the light of the Lord, the light of his countenance, is, of course, that which is the blessing of God. And so, friend, for our comfort, this text really is reminding us that the church, even friend on earth, the church militant, well, they should remember that weeping indeed may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Her divisions, her persecutions, they all have an expiry date. And that is for our comfort. But this text also gives us correction. And I want us to close with that this evening. The text shows us that the nations will encourage one another to walk in the light of the Lord. Now for most of the sound exegetes on this text urge that this particular prophecy This reviving of the nations and and the the re-engrafting of Israel, all of that is really to shame the generation that heard it first. And Why would that be? Well, if you look just back at the end of chapter 1, you'll recognize that the prophet has quite a lot to say about the magistrates in his day. And they are quite opposite to the magistrates described at the beginning of Isaiah 2. He describes his present-day princes as simply rebellious. Isaiah one twenty-three. And now, friend, what you find here is that the prophet tells us that God has promised that there will be future Gentiles who will shame his present Jewish leaders. In other words, and you can see how this goes, in other words, the prophet is saying very plainly, There is coming a generation of Gentiles, those people whom you despise, who are not so privileged as you, who did not walk for so many millennia under the light of God's word. There's coming a generation where their magistrates will shame you in obedience to God. But the second point, friend, too, is is one that we can't miss. Not only does it shame the defection that was among the politics in in Isaiah's day, it also shames the abuse. The abuse of the privileges that was given to the church and to the nation in Isaiah's day as well. He showeth his word unto Jacob, says the psalmist, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not done so with any, any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Israel was was peculiarly privileged with all of these external benefits. She had the word of God. She had the ordinances of God. In other words, friend, they already had this light. They already had the light of God. But despite having all of these things, in Isaiah's day, they did not walk according to it. And what the prophet is showing us, friend, is a generation that will have no greater external privileges, but who will walk in greater faithfulness. And that certainly is for our correction as well. Friend, when the Lord speaks of Christ ruling in his saints on earth, and he speaks of the healing of divisions in the church, and when he speaks of, of renewed faithfulness and, and of a general time, in which the Lord God, is, his ways are sought. His policies become that of the land and of the church. And you're to recognize that that age will know no greater external privileges than what we already have. They'll have the same Bible, the same promises and precepts, the same ordinances, means of grace, So the question is, if we have those self-same privileges, why are we not more like the generation so described? If we have all of those same external blessings, why are we not making such use of them ourselves? And in that way, friends, certainly this text does issue a correction. I want to say just very briefly that that here you and I are supposed to remember that that clearly coming faithfulness is supposed to shame present defection. And what you and I should see as well, friend, is that that though no generation before us would say that that the church in their age was perfect, there is a sense, friend, in which this text does correct us in in a more direct way. See, friend, it should be the case that we pray not just that our children do not backslide from that which we've attained. But in many ways, friend, we have to be praying in earnest that they will reform far beyond us. You know, previous generations, if you read them, often when the Lord poured forth his spirit in great ways, uh, when church and nation were clearly reformed, When those times occurred, often you would hear nations praying and ministers praying that the succeeding generation would simply not backslide. But then when you come to those ages in the church where deformation or defection is more prevalent, it's not just praying against backsliding. It's praying for reformation that is really what constitutes the principal pleas. And surely, friend, that has, to be, uh, that has to be what characterizes our praying as well. Friend, we need to be praying that God would take up these ordinances in the succeeding generation and make them more, more faithful, more earnest in seeking to walk after the light of the Lord than the present. But I want us to close as well Friend, leaving this text, of course, with a number of questions of examination. The uh, first basic one is, does this text thrill your soul? Do the promises in these first five verses of Isaiah 2, do they, do they thrill you? Uh, friend, they should. They're, they're calculated to do that very thing. As, as we're told that the, god, that the ungodly regimes fade, That 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 which seems so established among us does have an expiry date. Friend, it should lead us to rejoice because we find that God indeed will exalt himself among the nations even before the end. But the second point, and for our comfort, friend, you and I live in an age where, again, rebellion seems to be the policy of all nations. And so this promise that that there is coming a time when Christ will rule in his saints on earth, it can seem quite far. But, But can I remind you, friend, that when Isaiah preached in the temple and in synagogues, when he preached to the visible church in his time, that one day the Gentiles even in the outer isles, would know the Lord. For how impossible from human conception might that have seemed. There was this one nation that had given to them the word of God. And the rest of the nations were pursuing their vanities. And they had done so for millennia. And yet God was saying to this one nation, Your God, the only living God, will one day be the God espoused by Egypt, the outer isles, the Assyrians, the whole world. Why not Baal? Why not Asherah? Friend, where are the priests and the prophets of Baal today?
1: On this 25th
0: of February 2024, where are the temples to Jupiter and Saturn? On this 25th of February 2024, we are in the Outer Isles. And we know only the Living God. Friend, God fulfilled promises that to the church under age would have seemed impossible. And you and I live in the very fulfillment in history in which we see God's faithfulness so clearly displayed. If God has fulfilled that promise, friend, these promises, friend, you you and I should have no problem believing. It may be that as we look at this text, we do derive from that, the comfort that we ought. The final exhortation, friend, in this text is that you and I have the same privileges that that future generation will have. I know, yes, it's promised that there will be a greater effusion and pouring forth of the Spirit of God. But they'll have the same ordinances, the same Bible, same precepts, the same promises. And more than that, friend, the same Christ. And all of that, friend, should make us to endeavor through him to be more faithful in our generation, to make more diligent use of these means. And So, friend, you and I should leave this text encouraged. Our God, indeed, has assured victory to his people. We should leave this text as well corrected, acknowledging that, friend, you and I certainly should, should endeavor to greater and greater faithfulness, in the use of these privileges. And in all of this, friend, this text exhorts us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone, friend, works this work of reformation now, in the past, and in the time to come. Amen.